today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Many thought that, oh, when this all started, it's going to be a few weeks, we're out the other end, not a problem. Uh, but it's hard to have the change in life that we have had for the last, uh, I don't know, 11 months. Uh, we're at week 46, whatever that works out to be, uh, without coming out the other end and being changed. Yet, as the guest said regard, uh, regarding long-term care, they weren't necessarily optimistic that once the pandemic was over, that things uh, would actually improve and that we would learn uh, from all of this. In light of all of that, the Canadian press has interviewed a group of leading Canadian experts in disease control and epidemiology and asked them what should be done so this does not happen again, or if it does, how we certainly do uh, reduce the threat of what we have seen happening over the last uh, several months. Let's bring in Dr. Donald Shepard, Director, McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity, Chair, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am quite well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, many have said, again, as I mentioned in the preamble, that, uh, you know, there's no way we're going to come out of this and be the same. Will we learn from this uh, global pandemic? Or once we get vaccinated six, eight months in and life turns whatever the new turns to whatever the new normal is, uh, we'll forget about all of this stuff. How optimistic are you that this will change? Well, I got to tell you, I'm an eternal optimist. I don't find life very enjoyable if you don't live it optimistically. So I think there will uh-huh. be changes. The question, of course, is not will there be changes, but how far will they go and how bold will we be? So as you have seen this unfold uh, and and where we are now with this pandemic, what stands out to you? What stands out as uh, some of the important lessons we could learn here? Well, there's a lot of them, quite frankly, and many of them were outlined in that article. The ones I spoke about were uh, predominantly around two issues. One is uh, the way our health system is set up, this uh, sharing of powers and responsibilities between the federal government and the provincial governments um, is, is really kind of a negotiated settlement, and it was never really conceived as a way to deliver nimble, efficient, and rapid health care to Canadians. And this uh, pandemic really outlined for us that, indeed, it is not the best system for that purpose. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And then the other one is uh, innovation. We don't talk about innovation. It's, it's in every newspaper you pick up. Innovation is the buzzword of this particular century. And we have not built a system that is innovation-friendly. Uh, let's go, uh, let's work with innovation because again, there was a, uh, a story that came out yesterday about a, co- a company by the name of Providence Therapeutics, uh, that said they were banging on the door of the government back in March saying, you know, we're only a few weeks behind the big boys, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, and we just need some help to push this Canadian solution through. Are we focusing enough on those, uh, types of operations? So I think the the innovation issue uh, hits at multiple levels. There's the one that everybody immediately thinks of, which is, hey, where's Canada's uh, vaccine production facilities and why aren't we making the vaccines uh, Mm -hmm. ahead of everybody else? That's the obvious one. That, you know, is not really a health system as much as a global Canadian economy issue where we as a small country just did not maintain a lot of these resources as essentially what they are as national security measures, right? The ability to make stuff 
behind our borders so that when the borders come crashing down because of what we saw and when there's supply chain shortages, that, that we actually have what is essentially a, a, not just a national stockpile of things, but a national stockpile of the ability to make things. And I think we've really learned that lesson. And, and I will say that the federal government is investing a lot of energy, money and time in learning from this lesson. So that, that's the source of some of my optimism. Where my pessimism is, is the government structures and the way they play with innovation at a smaller scale level. So let's say you decide that your school where your kid goes wants to do testing, and they want to do rapid testing to see if there are asymptomatic kids with COVID at school. Seems like a really reasonable thing to mm -hmm. test. That is like a salmon swimming upstream to get anything to move at multiple of the province's jurisdictions. I obviously don't know all the provinces, certainly in my own province and in Ontario, that's been a huge challenge because the ministry likes to tell people what to do. They aren't necessarily that open to being told this might be something new and a path to allow people to come up with creative solutions. Uh, you know, we've been talking, and you bring up rapid testing, we've been talking about rapid testing since the very beginning of all of this. Yet here we are, 46 weeks in, people are still screaming about rapid testing. And we all, you know, we just get finger pointing, well, it's due to that, it's due to this, lack of approval, lack of this, lack of that. Um, just in, in rapid testing alone, why has that taken so long? Why is this so long to be approved? So I'm afraid much of the blame for this here lies at the level of the provinces, because the federal government did mobilize to buy and ship rapid testing to multiple of the provinces, some like Nova Scotia, who used it for these sort of pop-up testing clinics, which were a brilliant idea. Other provinces, such as my own, have really dragged their feet on it. And despite a lot of public pressure, uh, they're only now getting to uh, issuing to, to launching pilot studies for these things. Look, I, I, have a, I have a son who goes to an American university. And the only way that he's allowed to go to campus is if he gets tested twice a week. That's something that's been rolled out in multiple jurisdictions across the U.S. Now, I certainly don't want to become American overnight, and there are some good and bad things with their system, as we all know. But their system is much more open to innovation. Universities can just unilaterally decide to start doing this, and they don't have to wade through a quagmire of bureaucracy and people pushing from the top down to tell them no, 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 no they're allowed some autonomy to innovate and that's what moves the needle you use the word nimble and in the private sector we've heard nimble pivot all of these key words and 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 again we've seen this happen uh almost immediately in the private sector i i've told the story many times of you know my boss telling me on a monday hey you're out you got to do the show from home and yeah like that's going to happen and by wednesday i was doing it um, and, and still stunned. And yet the government, it's like turning the Titanic. And, and again, whether it's, uh, healthcare, uh, whether it's education, uh, whatever it is, it just seems, uh, you know, approval. Uh, it just seems that it, it, it's just this gigantic, uh, object that has a hard time moving. Will we see governments recognize exactly what you just said? And we've got to be as nimble as, as the rest of, the world is the rest of business is so i think that this message is starting to get through you know is is it going to get through that we're going to rewrite the constitution and change how we uh and re rewrite the health care act and see how we distribute powers between the provinces and the federal government of course that's unlikely 
But at a more uh, provincial level, I think there is a recognition that maybe things need to move quicker, that maybe we have to have some processes in place that we can accelerate some of these ideas forward. And let me give you the example of what Quebec is doing with the vaccine. So very quickly, like literally turning on a dime, Quebec has moved to delaying the second dose of the vaccine in order to vaccinate more people with the first dose, because, of course, we don't have as much as we would like. Now, Mm -hmm. we can sit here and argue for hours. Is that a good decision, a bad decision? It follows the science, but does it follow this science or that science? But what we can't argue with is the fact that that was a real-time very creative, nimble, forward-looking solution that actually showed that they were responding to data and they were making decisions, uh, if you will, on the fly and have a plan to pivot and to stop doing it or to go to a shorter duration or, or, to, or to change very rapidly as data emerged from other places like the UK, from our own uh, population in Quebec and from Israel. So, uh, so I think there are some case studies that can make us optimistic as well. I don't just want to rain on everybody's parade here today. The, the second dose is a great example of everybody doing it differently because we certainly remember Ontario taking a hammering because, you know, uh, Ontario was way behind, even though it was only like a couple of points of a percentage behind the rest of the provinces in vaccinating. And then when you look further into uh, the details, uh, for example, comparing Quebec, um, you know, and I'm pulling these numbers off of my head, so they're not accurate. But I remember seeing, for example, there was like 121,000 uh, doses that had been the first dose that had been administered in Ontario. Um, uh, Quebec was ahead of Ontario, even with a lower population of administering uh, more of that first dose. But then you look down to the second dose. And of course, uh, Quebec hadn't hadn't given anybody the second dose, but Ontario had already vaccinated about 84,000 people. Uh, with the second dose and and everybody was screaming that one was doing it right one was doing it wrong and then of course the shortage came and many many looked to dr bonnie henry in british columbia who came right out and said weeks ago we are not saving the second dose uh we i can't justify putting it in a fridge when it needs to be in people's arms yet everybody's yelling about following the science and the science and the research says the prescription from health canada and from pfizer is is don't do that hold back for the second dose and then there's all of a sudden all these experiments going on about okay you can maybe let it go this time this time that time and then all that went out the window when the supply came to a grinding halt so that's another example about how every single province is doing this differently and we all know that healthcare is a provincial uh, jurisdiction and such but how, how do you balance that how do you okay here's the rule from the feds on this but then you can do what you want for the rest how, how do you balance that and, and make it consistent in some way yeah you know it, it's it's really the challenge that we're talking about here because you know on one hand i'm saying that we have a problem with this division of authority and that uh, people are doing different things and on the other i'm complaining that we don't have enough innovation and we should be letting people innovate mm. it seems like i'm being very contradictory doesn't it The reality is, I think that what we need is we need to have a federal standard for minimums. Okay? We have a basic federal standard of minimums. We got vaccines. They're in your fridges. The minimum is every single one of those goes into somebody's arm within two weeks. We have rapid tests. We bought them. Use them. We don't care how you use them. Come up with a creative way. Do something unique for your province. It's going to contribute to the knowledge base of this country. But don't do nothing. You know, hit the minimum standards. But once you pass the minimum standards of what we know is good, innovate the heck out of yourself. 
do it differently in Quebec and Ontario in real time so that, hey, if for once Quebec wins and Ontario has to take the back seat and you follow us, everybody will be yeah. happy, at least in my province. Uh, I think that, that there is a strength and diversity in these different approaches, but the key thing is that we've got to maintain that minimum. We can't be shipping diagnostic tests that we know can detect asymptomatic infectious people and sticking them in warehouses instead of using them to find asymptomatic infectious people and pull them out of the situation where they're infecting individuals. That That's where I think the, the sweet spot is. And it's going to take, it's going to take a lot of effort to think, how do we build innovation in? How do we say that the ministry is going to have a pathway where a private lab at a university who wants to set up testing can actually get a set of standards, can get a rapid approval and can, follow some sort of simple, not five million pages of paperwork protocol to actually potentially figure out that there is a better way to do this and a better mousetrap to be built. Uh, one of the recommendations in uh, this as well, one of the five was uh, better messaging and communication. Uh, we certainly know, especially during the early stages of this pandemic, getting uh, contradicting information. And let's and let's be fair, a lot of that due to just the fact this the the story was so fluid and things were literally uh, changing daily. Uh, that being said, if we don't have the consistencies, as we were just talking about in some of those other areas, if we don't have a consistent protocol for handling all of this how can we possibly have a consistent message uh the messaging just reflects what's going on the confusion above no i think this is where scientists need to step up a little better and by scientists i mean everybody physicians scientists caregivers nurses people who are in the healthcare field and and i think that we have a much bigger responsibility than we've been living up to and the responsibility is to give clear transparent, accessible information to people that tells them, this is what we know, this is what we think, this is what we hope. And most importantly, that people stay in their lane. If you want to ask me about what the ventilation standard should be inside schools, I'm going to tell you, I have no idea, go ask an engineer. That's not my field. I'm not trained in that. I'm an infectious disease physician, a researcher, that's what I know. And I think if we actually, as a scientific community, stepped up a little more in that area and stepped back when we should, it would have actually made things a lot easier. Because you tell people, this is, you know, the evidence says this, this is what I think, but I can't be 100% sure. It's a lot easier for people to understand when you come back a week later and say, I was wrong, here's why I was wrong, and here's why I think we should do this in the future. People forgive you when you're wrong, so long as you didn't tell them up front that there was no other way other than my way, and then you have to go back and walk it back. What do you think life will look like a year from now? Uh, or or let's, let's even make this harder. A year from now, once we're all vaccinated. So, you know, theoretically now we're all looking at vaccination, or those who want it by September. What do you think the following September will look like what will life be like will is this something that is this one of those things that no one can live through much like a war and come out the other side the same uh will what will it it be like a year after vaccination well i think some things are going to go back to exactly the way they were of course i think you know there's going to be a huge uh hit on the restaurant and hospitality industry but i am willing to bet that maybe it's not a year maybe three years that'll all have bounced back because you know what 
we actually like to travel. We like to eat in restaurants. Most people who enjoy those things miss them, and it'll it will eventually recover, which I know is cold comfort to those people who are who have been horribly horribly hit economically. Where I think we're going to see some changes is how we approach illness. I think that uh, we may see a shift to the fact that it is no longer strange to see somebody wearing a mask. But people who have colds, I hope, are going to start wearing masks and staying home from work. Have you had a cold since March? Yeah, good point. Well, remember the flu. Everybody was worried about the flu and the two of these uh, situations colliding, where actually what we've done for COVID-19 has kept the flu down. Yeah, and that was pretty obvious that that was going to happen. And I have to admit, I chuckled many times when people were saying, oh, no, the flu on top of COVID is going to crush things. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, mass two-meter distancing and staying at home is a really good way to keep yourself from getting the flu as well. So I think that'll change. Um, and I think that uh, we will see, hopefully, a better understanding of this. And we'll see a lot more remote activities. I don't think everything's going to go back to uh, to uh, in person. I anticipate that half of my administrative meetings that require me to go from the hospital all the way across town to the university, I'm going to be able to zoom into those. And and so hopefully we'll get some blending of this online and in-person lives that we've had uh, in the past that will actually improve our quality of life. Will we be more empathetic? I think people are people. I think right now there are people who are incredibly empathetic. I've had some of the most, you know, bring tears to your eyes gestures that have happened in the last year during some of the worst times. And I think people are fundamentally empathic, uh, uh, are, uh, exhibit empathy and are more sympathetic. I think right now we're just a little stressed. Um, and I actually think mm-hmm. that we may see people rebound from their stressed place once things start to, to loosen up. Good point. Dr. Donald Shepard with us, Director McGill Interdisciplinary Initiative in Infection and Immunity and Chair of Department of Microbiology and Immunology. Donald, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And take care of yourself. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked a lot uh, about air travel and, and how it has continued to go on. Uh, the Prime Minister constantly says that uh, the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic has not spread through air travel, uh, yet we are certainly hearing confirmation that, in fact, the new variants, uh, that is exactly how they arrive. We have talked about testing. We were talking about this with our last guest uh, at airports. We we hear about a, a patchwork of things, some some uh, uh, initial uh, programs that they're trying and, and other things that have been in place. Uh, the National Airlines Council of Canada, uh, representing uh, airlines and such, uh, released the, a statement uh, in, in regard to uh, airline travel and uh, testing and such, and they are giving support for the Premier's call for testing upon arrival. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Mike Manani, is with us, President and CEO of National Airlines Council of Canada, and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing as well as you can uh, if you work in aviation these days. I can imagine that. So what are the rules as they stand now? Uh, is there testing? How much testing? Uh, quarantine? What are the rules as of today? So the rules of today, as of today, are the following. If you are uh, coming into the country, and obviously you would have to meet the border restriction criteria to be allowed into Canada, so a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident, 
You would need to have a negative PCR test taken within 72 hours of your planned departure. You would need to present that test to uh, airport, excuse me, airline staff at the airport. Uh, and then you would be allowed to board if you do not have a test or obviously if your test is positive. One would presume you would not show up at the, at the airport if your test was positive. But if you do not have that test or it is positive, then you are uh, not allowed to board and you are not allowed to return to Canada. And then How upon a- arrival... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, it is a confusing piece here. There's, there's more to it. Uh, and then upon arrival in Canada, you are required to uh, quarantine for 14 days. So are you confident that these or this protocol is being followed, that in fact people are getting tested before they board planes for Canada and that uh, they are quarantining when they get back here or when they get here? The, the protocols are being followed, but what we have been advocating for for the past nine or ten months with the federal government is that we need to have a true robust testing strategy and a truly robust testing strategy would include multiple testing at different points in the journey it would also be tied to your quarantine uh, levels so we have we have put out our release yesterday and you you led that uh, in the intro uh, in terms of premier ford's call for testing upon arrival mandatory testing upon arrival we have been fully in favor of additional testing and, and have worked with our airport partners at uh, Pearson Airport, as well as Calgary International Airport, Vancouver International Airport, to launch a series of pilot testing programs over the past several months. And the whole purpose of, of that activity was so that we could drive forward the debate and the policy development on testing and avoid ourselves getting into you know, situations where we had, back on December 30, the announcement, okay, as of you know, one week from now, we're going to require testing, and, and we could actually have a much more uh, controlled and, and, and operationally sound rollout of testing programs. So if you look right now at the, at the pilot project underway in Calgary, you would be tested 72 hours out, as we, we just talked about. Uh, upon arrival in Calgary, uh, you would be tested, and then you would be tested on day seven, uh, while you were in quarantine in mm. Calgary, and only after you had three negative tests over 10 days uh, and that you still had to quarantine, only then uh, could your quarantine put, uh, change. And that, that is a fulsome testing strategy. So when the Premier came out yesterday with, uh, with his statements at uh, GTAA, we, we immediately issued a release and, and we support what he is arguing for. If they are showing a negative test before they board a plane, do they need to be tested again when they land? Well, it's all part of ensuring a layered approach to the pandemic, and that has been baked into everything that has been occurring over the past 10 months as far as aviation, regulation that has gone into effect, and the operations that carriers have implemented in terms of trying to protect passenger health, employee health, and public health. There's not there's not one measure. And if you look at what has been occurring in other jurisdictions, you have seen multiple testing. And what you have also seen is the introduction of uh, rapid antigen testing. And you would do a serial application of rapid antigen testing in addition to uh, a PCR test. And all of that then leads to the more robust approach uh, and, and, and how we ultimately uh, have to operate. And, and you know, tied to all of this, we have to keep in mind, we are going to be living with this virus for an indeterminate time period. As we work through testing, we also have to do a very clear job and have a clear policy about how we are going to enable passengers to electronically capture their testing data and their vaccination data and provide that in a secure fashion to airlines and 
government entities. And that goes back to your to your earlier question in terms of what's the process. And I, I, I left this piece out. You are demonstrating your testing results uh, via a piece of paper that you receive from the entity that undertook the testing. We obviously need to get ourselves to a point where all that data is being controlled electronically and securely uh, in order to ensure the, the, the total veracity of the system and also enable eventual recovery. Right now, we are operating with, with less than uh, 10% of international uh, capacity that we would typically have, and 80% plus has been removed domestically. Eventually, we are going to see more passengers and more numbers, and we're going to need a system that can accommodate all of that. Uh, Obviously, we're hearing rumors that more restrictions are coming for air travel. Any idea what that could entail? We have not been involved. The government has not consulted with industry as it's currently developing those measures. We sent a, a letter to cabinet uh, and as also a, a release last week along with major uh, union air, aviation unions so we had the airline pilots association the air canada pilots association unifor and cupy and we all had a, a a united ask of the government which is bring us into the room as you were developing whatever this path is going forward we are the frontline airlines and airline employees are the frontline implementers of whatever order measures or approaches are taken. Bring us into the room uh, so we can get involved in the in the process and the decision-making. Uh, but uh, that, that has not happened. So I, I am operating on the, the same things that you see floated uh, in the press as far as what may or may not be coming. You, uh, obviously, the association is um, uh, in favor of this testing, not so much a hotel quarantine. Why is that? That's correct. We believe that if you layer on the second aspect of testing, so one within 72 hours, one upon arrival, we do not need to go to the additional step of having individuals quarantine, excuse me, having them quarantine, uh, and we're calling it hotel quarantine, but however you want to phrase it, uh, and changing the quarantine policy from that perspective, simply because we've now layered on uh, a second test upon arrival. Where do you see this industry one year after? Okay, so obviously this is going to be uh, hypothetical, but the government's talking about having everybody immunized by, say, September. What do you see in the year following that, once we're vaccinated? Oh, it's a good question. And, and hypotheticals are very, very tricky business in, in, in aviation to begin with, let alone now. If we do a number of things correct, and now, what would those things be? If we continue to have uh, a, a or have a, a solid rollout of vaccinations, if we have a robust testing strategy along the lines of what I have, I have described, and you are tying that testing strategy to quarantine, if we have uh, and have established a clear, strong means for passengers to communicate their testing and their their uh, vaccination data electronically securely to airports and to, to, excuse me, to airlines and government authorities. If we can get those pieces in place, then we have the means to start to, to form a recovery for the sector. If we don't get those pieces correct, then I, I can't even speculate uh, as, as to what things would look like uh, a year from now. What you hope occurs is all those cylinders line up. And what you hope occurs is that we are then able to continue the safe restart of the sector. But we also have to keep in mind, too, overall, 80% plus capacity domestically has been parked and has been removed from the marketplace for, for seven or eight months. 
90 plus percent of capacity internationally has been has been removed. The most latest figures from StatScan, I think it was 93 percent, uh, has been removed. Uh, so it is going to take time to bring that that capacity back online. It's going to take time to bring uh, employees back online and, and get them uh, current on on uh, their training obligations. It, it, it's going to be a very detailed, difficult process, and a number of things need to line up. And that's what our engagement with government is all about. We need to work like heck right now on those cylinders that we need to line up and those aviation policy pieces that we need to line up. Mike Manani has been with us, President and CEO of the National Airlines Council of Canada, representing the major airlines and talking about uh, their support for the call for testing upon arrival at airports. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck in all of this. We hope to fly soon. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.